Hello, I'm Liberty Erickson, and this is the MIWA Podcast. In this episode, we present the second part of the lecture, Field Notes in the Color Garden, presented by Michelle Garcia. This lecture was recorded live Tuesday, September 22nd, 2015, as part of the Maiwa School of Textiles lecture series held in Vancouver, Canada. This podcast consists of excerpts from the lecture and was first posted in 2018. In this second half of his presentation, Michel continues to examine the challenges of promoting natural dyes in our world of global mass production and misinformation. Join us as we explore how to re-establish the balance between global productions with people and culture on a more human scale. Okay, the, the third thematic will be about books because people ask me books. That's very strange because we have plenty and they do not realize that most of the old books are on internet for free. The Google Books and others, the National French Library. And then sometimes I give my classes with some memory stick with um, virtual library, a, ver- a collection of books and giving the class. I cannot do that in English actually because I'm collecting everything in French to get an overview of the history and how it was, uh, how was the evolution. So maybe I will publish that once, but it's an enormous thing. I will maybe never finish. But then giving the classes, I give them, okay, 10 or 20 books about Indigo, about World, about this and that. And they come back with a big, big library at home. They have hundreds and hundreds of pages to read, but they do not do by themselves. They ask me a selection. What shall we read? That's very strange because we have a wonderful tool. From that tool, we can do anything we want, especially the young generation. They are not very good for culture with this. They are good for communicating, but culture, that's very strange. They ask me to work on that machine, but that, that's what happens. And then I started to select the book and to reread the books I already read before. And I can tell you that the whole truth is not in books. And you know that probably better than me. In books, we read what we already know or what we are just looking for at the moment. If you reread the book after years, you will find something else. And if you read and read, you will find it always different because you will be different. And you just find what you are when reading. That's extremely interesting. And then I discovered rereading and classifying the things to get my little virtual libraries that these old books are so fundamental to understand something. Each generation adopted specific criteria. That's the only thing which is changing the criteria. For example, working, um, studying a little bit around the um, uh, Royal BC Museum in, in Vancouver Island, I've seen lovely works of the native with interesting natural dyes, but they were on basketry, they were paintings on wood, They were also on some textile, but very different, and the criteria was different. Imagine, for example, the porcupine quills. You know that porcupine quills? 
Will you put that in a washing machine? <laughs> Probably not. So <laughs> they, they didn't have the same way of life, so the criteria were different. And investigating, we just forget the criteria. The criteria are mainly economic in the history. If you don't have that, you will pay very expensive to have it, so it will be at the detriment of the local things, probably. So everybody wanted to promote his local things. That's extremely interesting because in the Spanish books, you get the promotion of American staff and local Spanish staff. In France, that's a promotion of the French staff. And each one say, oh, don't use this staff. It's a bad one, giving bad colors. For example, in Spanish books, the anato, the safrawa, the indigo, the logwood, they are great things. And in French books, they are very bad things because they do not have some. So they have to pay too expensive. So that's very interesting to read the whole. That's the only period historically where you can have an enormous library just in a small box like that and compare all these books. When I was young, I was taking the bus to go to Aix-en-Provence. That was a big library. And then I was spending the whole day to study one book. The whole day, taking the bus, and I was asking one day off. I needed one day off to do it. Today, with 15 minutes, you get the book. You go to the research, automatic research, to see the, the words on the book. And that's crazy. You can have not only the book, the library the of the thematic. That's very interesting then to compare. So today I had a great moment with some student, and one student was from uh, Chinese origin. So I was really inspired because she was involved in some social activity and communitary activity with children and others, and I love that kind of job. And I said that I was studying the old books about China because you maybe you do not know, but France was the country of a new science which appeared at the 18th century called the Sinology. Sinology was at the time the study of Chinese culture. That's very strange, but then they were specialists of translation. That's not easy for Latin people, but they were studying hard and they did translate quite a lot of things. Of course, for economical purpose, because they, they translate everything about the porcelain, to make the porcelain de Limoges and others, uh, the silkworm and everything about the silk, so that was also very precious for the country, but many other things, and a lot of stuff about natural dyes from China. That's very interesting, nobody knows that. And when I was working in Hongzhou at the National Silk Museum, I started to, well, to do my job. Uh, there was a lab, and I was supposed to do the different colors. And then the man working there told me, how do you know that? We had so difficult to find the text, even in Chinese. And you come from France, and you know this text. Uh, well, it was because there were some Jesuits at the 18th century working in Beijing. And uh, they were employed by the, the emperor Qianlong. Qianlong was 
special person. He was from Manchu origin. He was not the friend of the population, majority Han population, didn't like the Manchu guy. And he was a little bit paranoiac, and he, he did want to prove that the Manchu culture was kind of super thing, and asked to the French people, the priest, to translate and make the big Manchu dictionary. And these priests spent their whole life translating about everything that was asked to do. And we have plenty of interesting things and interesting recipes. And I will take the example of the safflower because I have seen some lovely robes, dragon robes, maybe you know that, from the court of the emperors, uh, dyed in brilliant red with the safflower, which is supposed here to be a weak color. But the recipes are different there. So we got the drug, but we forgot the recipe there, or something like that, which is quite frequent. So all these books are really interesting when comparing, because we did more and more and more simple. And we got the idea of they put something acid, so we'll put any kind of acid. And they put some base, we'll put any kind of base. And then we forgot the type that they were using, which was important. They were using a special plum, which has both tannin and some organic acid, precious organic acid. And the mix of both is uh, really improving the fastness. That's interesting because the Western method is extremely simple, as we did today, washing the safflower and using a base to extract and neutralizing with acid. That's the general purpose. But comparing the different things, we had very interesting results with the Chinese methods. So I'm expecting that once in France, we remember again that it was a country of Sinology, and we, I would like people to be more open to this culture. That's a very interesting and great culture. I'm waiting for some more exchanges, because uh, actually the relationship is a kind of economical relationship, <laughs> which is not the most interesting for me. But then we tried to think about with the fellows, we are pressing more safflower here and washing to do the scale up. And you cannot imagine to wash 10 kilos of safflower, how much time it is. We tried to redo it as it was written. It was a whole day working hard, pressing and washing and pressing. And so that safflower at human scale, but don't ask me to make one ton of that because <laughs> that's the hell. But the color is really brilliant and interesting. So by reading books, not ordinary things, not only hobby books, some of them are uh, glorious and very interesting, but well, by reading that kind of writing is very interesting because then we are in the heart of the subject. They are not good things and good colors and bad colors. They are good methods and inappropriate methods. So that must be said because that idea to share in good and bad, well, that's stupid. Look at this book. That's a Spanish one about the good girl. You know, the garnet is very important in the past to fix the colors in Europe. 
So the good girl in Spain is the white girl with the holes. It must be light and plenty of holes. That's a good girl. Because that was the work of the insect transforming by the enzyme and everything. Well, that's a good girl. But in the French books, the good girl is the black one with no hole, and that's exactly the opposite. So that's the work of commercial people who sell one here and the other there. But in fact, which one is the good girl? In fact, in reality, the black one is the good, good one. But it was not as evident at the moment. So if you follow this book as the plain truth, Maybe you will just dump the good thing and keep the garbage. Okay, up to you. So the truth is not on the books, but very interesting to replace that in the context. If you ask me a very simple question, sometimes I'm starting with a long tale about the history of trading girls, and you will be tired of that. But that's not so simple. We must be suspicious and prudent. And I was working on that story of Grandin and Petitin, so the great quality or the poor quality of dyes. I did meet the origin of that. I was working on the charts, you know, the royal charts, the laws. Documents, parchments and laws, they are published in some special books. And of course, there were no books in the Middle Age, but we have these charts. And each corporation has its own charts with the rules of the corporation. And the dyers are corporation, and also the, um, the weavers is another corporation. And the story is telling, that's very earnest. When the King Louis IX was going to the crusade, crusade Holy Louis, say, he was going to the crusade, the mother the queen, white queen, la reine blanche, we say, the mother of the king, prophet on the time the son was at the war to change the rule and she did allow the weavers to do the dyes, but she did not allow the dyers to do the weave, to weave. So the fight started at the time, say the story, and all the laws I did find after centuries and centuries is related to what is allowed and what is forbidden. And they denounce each other. We are doing the right die by using this and that. They are not doing the right die because they use this and that. And the one who started with Grantin and Petitin is not Louis XIV. It's, it's just before, long time before, it's Louis XI. In 1479, he's tired of all these fights, and he said, okay, we will have the Grandin, the one of the dyers, and the Petitin was, at the time, the one of the weavers, because they are allowed to do something, but they will not do exactly the same than the others, so they will stop to fight, and we'll have two kinds. And they were all also... Uh, demanding what's allowed, what's forbidden. Then that's this incredible story that the most forbidden thing is to use this little iron sun which is falling from the knife grinders. You know these guys, they are grinding the knives and there's a little ferrous sand. So that was the worst thing to use 
But <laughs> if you need 100 kilos of that, you will have difficult to find because that's we are talking of a couple of grams. So that's kind of surrealist thing. It's impossible. That's the law, but that's law for nothing because you will never have more than maybe 10, 20 grams of that. It will not change the course of, of the profession. If we think about what was forbidden, it was nothing, absolutely nothing. And that's very interesting because it was lasting during years and I've seen some of them, uh, exactly the copy of that in 1735, they were still demanding that this uh, little sound from knife grinders to be forbidden in dyes. So that's, uh, that's kind of fairy, you know, impossible. And then I was very interested on that period, 17th century at the moment, you know, Colbert created the minister of Louis XIV, he created the Academy of Science, the first Academy of Science in the world, in the Western world. And they created also some laws and rules for the dyers very, very strict laws. And then I was interested because that was the first book published in France. And I was really keen on the origin of that. So I was studying the book very clearly and investigating about the good red from the Kermes insect. I found the same text which was in. I, b I did believe during years and years what I was reading is that they were studying and comparing to find the best recipes. But I, disc I was surprised to see that the, the good red, the recipe was just picked in another book from this guy, who is a priest, writing a kind of a book for general culture. For when you, you go to the church, Catholic church, he, there's the homily, homily you say? He's explaining everything of everyday life related to the Bible. He must know, all priests must know about everything, some words about everything. You know, the hunting, the art of hunting, the art of uh, uh, goldsmiths, of everything. And this book is kind of book written by the guy about everything you are supposed to know if you want to do the homily and speak to each, each one. So it was not from Colbert. So I did look a little bit more and then I arrived to this guy at the 16th century and they were copying and copying and then this study was not a study, was a lazy study. They were just picking the older elder text and putting that. But that was dramatic because this one, bless the visionaire, in fact got the text in Italy. He was a crypt cryptographer. He was working in Roma for the King Henry II, French Henry II. It's the first one who did publish the text. So the one of Colbert has been picked in this one. But they were just picking the same text, saying, oh, now we'll give the new rule. But it was not the new rule. It was the same thing from before. But the drama was, this was an anecdote from a guy who is not a dyer. And it became a very strict rule. But in this text, they say that you need to put the arsenic inside, arsenic acid. 
So for, to get the acidity of the bath, probably you would get same with lemon juice. Okay, that was the arsenic, but from the time of Louis XIV, you were obliged to put the arsenic. It was not a study. They were copying and copying until the time the dictator said, now you will respect the law. And they were polluting and they were killing everything in the river in Paris because at Le Goblin, that's a small river, and they were killing everything. It was not from a professional. It was 200 years old. It was an anecdote and it became the law. That's crazy. We do not know that. We think that they were working for people to be happy of everything. They were working hard for the happiness of the poor people. Of course not. That was pure politics. And some guys were in charge of studying and they didn't do the job. They were copying an old book and they were serving that like a new study. Very interesting. The arsenic is an enzyme inhibitor. In some cases, that could be really interesting. If you put arsenic uh, with a plant which has glycosides, you will have the glycosides. They will not be modified by the enzyme. So we can understand that. Then after, long time after, the scientists, the, the chemists, did investigate until Berthollet, until the revolution, and they discovered that it doesn't change anything. Most of the time, people still put the arsenic centuries after. They don't know why, but they are supposed to use that. And in fact, it doesn't change anything to the result. And they, eventually, they did abandon that. At the period, they didn't have enough. <laughs> Very lucky. So can you imagine what's the tradition? And in this text, there were also interesting things about wheat brown. So wheat brown is different. I was wondering about wheat brown, and I put this part of wheat brown, and I put that under the UV lamp, and then, gosh, the wheat brown is fluorescent, tremendously fluorescent. So I did buy another quality. I was not sure of that, so I did buy another one, and I did see that the coat, the external coat of the wheat, so the brown is just the, the skin of the wheat, the external coat is fluorescent, but not the internal, so there's something. And investigate, investigating, I did find the ferulic acid. And why is there ferulic acid in the plant? That's a tremendous anti-UV. So interesting for the plant, because there are lots of mutations from the UV. So the seed, does, the seed is self-protecting against the excess of UV for avoiding the mutation in the genetic material. But then putting that in kind of treatment on the wool, that was very interesting. There were two things. There were saponin, so kind of soap that would help to wash better, or there were also this anti-UV uh, interesting ferulic acid. So I tried to investigate. I did some samples that I sent to the lab for the xenotest, that's expensive, but sometimes you must do that to be sure. And I did compare with a very interesting soap plant, Kilaria saponaria, which has saponin, very high quality, very good. And then I did use the same wool, which was washed by a fellow in Feltin, in La Creuse. And I tried different dyes with uh, some non-treated, some treated with the wheat brown and some treated with the saponin. 
And in fact, the saponin and the wheat brown were both improving the fastness to light and sometimes very hardly and very, very interesting. So we forgot that of ferulic acid. That's very good. There are some companies today, as for example, this McKinley, I have no interest in the company, just to show that they use the ferulic acid as pro skin protection today because that's a very good UV absorber. So that's interesting to see that the sunscreen today, the modern sunscreen, are based on the same type of thing. That's very good for the dyes to be protected against the light by that kind of thing. So I did investigate. It's also interesting to see how to do the extract because it's very easy to do, but I spent kind of time. And if you reread the very famous books you perfectly know, you see that in some case they use acid such as sour waters. Under this term of sour waters, most of the time, that was for improvement of the dye. Most of the time, they are made with the wheat brown. So interesting to investigate, and I spent quite a lot of time on that. But it's really time-consuming, but nobody's doing that. Sooner or later, somebody must do that, because that's improving the things. And I got good light fastness with some poor dyes by using that. Also, I will be short with that, because I'm very long and boring. Just to try to answer to some questions of people, there are plenty of texts about the agaric, which is supposed to be a um, mushroom. I did collect quite a few texts about this agaric that they put in the dye, or they, they treat the world with that before the dye. It is the special other agaric that they call Judah's ear, that they are the black mushroom, Japanese black mushroom. But in fact, they did trade these things. They are Chinese garnet. They are just sumac garnet. Very interesting, high quality of gallic tannin. And they saw that it was a kind of dry mushroom. It has been studied by some people involved in a f uh, pharmacy, in the University of Pharmacy at the 19th century, extremely interesting because in one text they say, oh, we stopped to put the agaric because after some time, they just put the ordinary agaric and they say, well, it doesn't help, we will stop because then they didn't get the idea and that was extremely difficult at the time to understand until the time of this guy at the end of the 17th century, Pierre Pomé, he decided he was selling everything for the craftsmen, all kind of drug except the medicinal drugs, which was in the apothecary. This one was selling the drugs for all craftsmen. And he did recognize that they never know exactly what is this or that drug they sell. He did pay people to travel for him to see what's the anato and they made these designs. He paid the guy to be on a boat and to go to Caribbean Island to design the Caribbean people preparing the anato, which was a paste at the time, and to see what exactly is the indigo. That was new for the time, but that, that was very honest. And he's giving a full list of everything, including a very traditional old thing, very interesting, the lotus bark, 
well known uh, since the antique times because Pliny the Elder is talking about the lotus bark and they use that under the name of gosh hawk bark and in fact they didn't know what it was but from Marseille was arriving to Paris some bark and they were arriving on board of boats from eastern part of the world they didn't know what it was until uh, Gibour, this one very famous man working in the field of pharmacy, he decided at the 19th century to go to the cabinet of curiosity of the king, that was a museum, and to take some parts of everything which was inside and analyze. And it was the bark of the Simplocos, the one we were looking after in Indonesia. It was traded since centuries to France to fix the colors. That's absolutely crazy. So we refined exactly what was done, but that was difficult to prove. And other question of the students was about all these plants type Simplocos, because some people started to list, to do the list of every plant you can use instead of the alum as a biomodent. But uh, this man, Bancroft, the English uh, dyer, He's giving a key to understand that. He said, oh, these Indian guys, they are not very earnest because they are using that plant, Memesilon, to fix their colors. But they have plenty around the house, but they are paying very expensive to buy exactly the same growing in the mountain. We do not know if they are stupid or just ignorant, but okay, that's the case. But in fact, the same tree has a huge rate of aluminum if it's growing on some ground where there's aluminum in, and there's no aluminum if it's growing somewhere else. So that's very easy to understand. So I had a big demand from the uh, people from Guadeloupe and others. How can we sure that the plant we harvest or grow has the content of aluminum we are looking? So I was doing a kit, how to do simple again, Okay, so the kit consists in harvesting the thing you test, boiling a certain quantity, always the same, and put the gum and print that on same cotton fabric, and then you need the logwood. If it comes blue, and wash with the wheat brown. If it turns blue, there's a bioaccumulator of aluminum. There's the aluminum organic in the plant. If there's nothing, or nearly nothing, then you can abandon your project. So that's the type of demand that people uh, come to me with and say, how can we know that? We have poor means, we have we, no lab, we want to do that in the kitchen in five <laughs> minutes. <laughs> so you have to create something, and that's very interesting. Among the old texts, I uh, was evocating the enzymes. That's very interesting. These people are preparing the tea. Uh, this operation for the green tea, they call it kill the green. You know that? They are just cooking in a wok very, very gently to dry the leaves at some temperature just to inhibit the enzyme. So they break the enzyme so they keep the composition without the, uh, avoiding the evolution from the enzyme. And in these old Chinese texts, I found the same about the pagoda tree. So I got the idea of trying, if you kill the enzyme of the pagoda tree, you get the routine, very fast to light. If you don't kill that, you just dry your stuff, 
you will get the quercetin, which is very ordinary dye stuff, not very fast to light. So that's very interesting to investigate these little details. And the microwave will kill the enzyme as well. So lots of discussions about the acetate, aluminum acetate. I had very hard to explain that you have better to make your own than to buy the ready-made because it's not the same route, it's not the same stuff. In fact, I'm promoting that in my, in my class, but it's looking like a kind of enigma, very complicated for people who are not keen on this very simple thing. I cannot do it as more simple than that and more efficient. But then I had some publications against me because of that because I was supposed to be a very pretentious guy who imagined he's discovering something. But it's just efficient. You are not obliged to do that. But if you compare, you will see that. And I don't know why people are against innovation, always against, but that's very interesting to try, at least. And for example, again in Guadeloupe with the group, and they started again with everything around, but good quality, like uh, this Morinda, Route. That's an interesting island because they did import plenty of things and they have this invasive. You know the invasive? The Maikonia? Did you hear of that in Hawaii in different countries? This is a very invasive weed and that's a tremendous bioaccumulator of aluminum. That's a biomordant and that's an invasive thing. Why not to harvest that? Because people complain they have too much. That's very interesting. From that, we got very interesting dyes. That's interesting. We were visit uh, That's an anecdote, extra anecdote. We were visiting this butterfly museum, a uh, butterfly garden in Vancouver Island. Surprising to see that they are growing plants to feed the butterflies. They have beautiful butterflies, rare and protected, almost disappearing. But you know what they eat? They eat the invasive plants. We did find very invasive things there, and well, we have to think about nature because we are obsessed by regulating the universe. We are in charge to regulate the universe, and we do not have even the idea that it's maybe self-regulating, but at the speed of nature, which is a very slow life. But okay, back to this guy, and uh, also, Everything about the mordants, lots of people think about magic. I have the mordant, and then many questions about metallic mordants. Lots of people think that's magic. You know, the magic powder you put in any soup, and it will change the thing. But of course, it's based on the structure of some dyes. Some dyes are mordant dyes, and some are not. And if you put your magic powder I will compare that to the plug. You know, we have some plugs for the computer, but they are French European plugs. So we cannot plug that here. So the modern has a plug and the color has a plug. If it's not the right plug, it will never enter inside. You know, if you come with your European stuff and you try to plug that in Canadian plugs, it doesn't work. That's the same for the moderns. And if you go to England, it's not even not the same. And in Italy, it's not the same. So at the time, you have plenty of plugs at home if you travel. Okay, that's exactly the same for the plants. There's no magic. So there was a big demand 
about how it works, because that's unclear. Even on very, very honest books, you will not find that. So that was the heart of the thing. Also developing simple method to, to get a kind of overview of what is inside of the plant. And then we get that kind of uh, investigation by printing a set of mordants on the piece and having a big pile of piece and you put that in any kind of juice you have. And then you can see directly if there's that type of tannin, which proportion of dye stuff compared to the tannin, which is, and everything, just the overview very quickly, because now we are in a hurry to know everything in a glance. So that's interesting. That's a, a challenge to make it simple. That's very, very simple. And about the scale-up, I do not like to be pessimist. But some studies demonstrate that natural dyes are not substitutes of synthetic dyes. Synthetic dyes are very earnest. That's the progress. Yeah, that's the industry. The craftsmen are poor little guys, ignorance uh, with no effective work. So overall, we use the ground. Look at these girls, they're using the ground to do their craft activity. The industry is not using the ground, they're working in the sky. In the sky of the, that kind of stairs, you know. That's the Rena Plaza, you have heard of that in Bangladesh. So, very shortly, the TV evocated that. The very earnest big companies, or oh, the girl, I love this girl, that's a good fellow, she's just doing one shirt per day. But this big company is just doing 6,000 shirts per day. You know why? Because they are putting 6,000 craftsmen in a big room together, each one doing one shirt per day. So that's the modernity. Wow, gosh, that's a modernity. I cannot bear that. So we have to do it as simple as possible, but look after, you know, the balance. And then the question of human scale, I'm getting older, actually. I don't know how much time I will still travel and teach and do the experiments, but I don't believe anymore of good or bad colors. I don't believe anymore of earnest industrial scale and poor um, amateurism of craftsmen. And I just believe that, well, that's not easy to work with the living beings, uh, such as plants, because each one is unique. And the only thing to do to work with the unique plants, unique life, is to work at human scale. And I'm consulting for companies sometimes, and they tell me, we want all colors at the same price, and we want a unique process for everything. Your thing is very complicated. So I am spending my time to do it simple for people to really do it, because as I told you, by traveling, lots of people refuse to tell you how to do it, as for example, the indigo, I said. But uh, there's a limit, because too much, excessively simple, if you generalize too much, it, it is not satisfying. So I uh, will just promote natural dyes at human scale now, whatever my clients will be unhappy of that. Okay, thank you very much.
You have been listening to the second half of the lecture, Field Notes in the Color Garden, presented by Michelle Garcia, as part of the Maiwa School of Textiles lecture series held in Vancouver, Canada. This lecture was recorded live Tuesday, September 22nd, 2015. You can find more of the Maiwa podcast on the Maiwa School of Textiles website at schooloftextiles.com. That's schooloftextiles, all one word, dot com. For more information about Maiwa and all that we do, please visit our website at maiwa.com. That's M-A-I-W-A dot com. I'm Liberty Erickson, and thank you for listening.